This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program in segments two and three is returning guest to the program, Mr. Alistair McLeod. Uh, Alistair is the head of global research for Gold Money. And I'm going to get Alistair's take on what current Fed policy will mean for future interest rates and the future performance of the stocks that you may hold in your IRA or 401k. I know you're going to appreciate my conversation with Alistair. And again, that's in segments two and three of today's program. I do want to take a moment and talk about an additional resource that we are making available. It is a virtual class called the Revenue Sourcing Class. And the class talks about a four-step process that you can use that may help you achieve your dreams of a comfortable, stress-free retirement. The course will help you potentially maximize your benefits from Social Security, maybe divorce yourself from the IRS and your IRA or 401k. It is a three-night course that will be held in October uh, on three consecutive Tuesday nights beginning on the 5th of October. It's the 5th, 12th, and 19th of October. Uh, The class will begin at 7.30 p.m. and will conclude at 9 o'clock p.m. And it is a virtual class. There is a cost for the class of $49 to cover the cost of the workbook that you'll get when you enroll. Capacity is limited, but if you'd like to enroll in the class or learn more, all you need to do is go to revenuesourcingcourse.com. The website, again, revenuesourcingcourse.com, and you can enroll at that site. Again, revenuesourcingcourse.com. You know, the current economy, when you examine it, is literally chock full of debt bubbles. Now, one of the symptoms of a debt bubble is an inflated price in an asset class. And I'm going to talk about that with Alistair McLeod in segments two and three of today's program, as I mentioned, inflated asset prices are fueled by easy money and easy credit. So let me give you just a couple examples. Real estate values soar when easy mortgage credit exists. We're seeing evidence of this today. 30-year fixed-rate mortgages under 3% have helped fuel what I believe is a bubble in real estate prices. Higher education tuition rates rise. Tuition at colleges and universities goes up when student loans are easy to obtain. Certainly, we've seen that as now student loan debt totals more than $1.7 trillion. Now, the bottom line is this, a bubble in asset prices simply cannot exist without widely available easy credit. Now, let's just take a moment and look at stocks, and we'll expand on this as today's program progresses. If you go back to the market bottom, which occurred after the financial crisis in approximately March of 2009, Since that time, the markets rallied more than 400%, which is incidentally about three and a half times the average move in a bull market. So this bull market 
simply based on the move that stocks have made and based on the length of time over which stocks have made that move is extremely stale. So just that fact alone makes it pretty easy for someone to argue that stocks are in a price bubble. But if we dig in a little bit more, we find that there is a lot of margin debt also attached to market investments. Now, I'm going to assume that you're not at all familiar with margin debt. And if you're not, margin debt or a margin loan is a loan that you'll take out using brokerage account assets as collateral. Now, current collateralization rules relating to margin debt require that you have at least 50% equity in your portfolio. So for example, if an investor has a $1 million stock portfolio, he or she can borrow up to $500,000 against it. That leaves the investor with $500,000 in equity calculated as follows. You take the gross value of the brokerage account, which in this example is $1 million, and we take a margin loan against it of $500,000, which leaves $500,000 in equity. Well, that $500,000 that an investor receives in margin loan proceeds can now be used to buy more stock. Well, if the gross value of the stock portfolio continues to rise, the investor can increase the margin loan on the portfolio. The requirement again is that equity in the account is maintained at 50%. Now, if one goes back and takes a look at the level of margin debt that existed at the time of the dot-com bubble peak, margin debt was about $310 billion. At the time of the financial crisis, back in 2007, 2008, prior to the market actually bottoming in March of 2009, we saw margin debt reach about $400 billion. Depending on whose numbers you want to look at, margin debt today is $800 billion to approaching $1 trillion. So there is a lot more debt attached to brokerage accounts than there has been at any time in the past, which has served, in my view, as bubble fuel. Investors are borrowing money to buy stocks. Now, if one goes back and takes a look at the relationship between the price of stocks and total margin debt, you see that they track each other very closely. And if margin debt were to begin to contract, which would not require a big market correction to start that process, it's likely that that would continue to fuel a market decline. And I'll talk more about that with Mr. Alistair McLeod in the next, in the next couple segments. Now, we could apply that same analysis to the real estate market. If you take a look at the Case-Shiller National Home Price Index, which is, I would say, the most widely used index to track the price of homes, 
If you go back to 2007, 2008, at the time of the financial crisis, when the real estate bubble blew up, if you will, the index stood at a number of 180. Today, that number is 240, which is an increase of about a third. And over that same time frame, mortgage debt, debt attached to real estate, has increased by more than $3 trillion over the level of, of mortgage debt that existed at the time of the financial crisis. So my point is this, conditions are right to possibly repeat what we saw happen in 2007, 2008. And I'd like to invite you to learn more. As I talked about at the beginning of this segment, we are making an additional free resource available. That resource is a class based on my best-selling revenue sourcing book. It's a virtual class. You just need to be seated at your computer for three Tuesday nights in October to participate. The cost for the course is $49 to cover the cost of the workbook. And when you participate in the course, you'll also get social security maximization reports, reports that may help you reduce the tax liability on your IRA or 401k and actually divorce yourself from the IRS in those accounts. And you'll also see how to put together a revenue sourcing income map and allocation map. If you'd like to register for the course, the cost, as I said, is $49. You can go to revenuesourcingcourse.com. That's revenuesourcingcourse.com. And you can get more information there or register. Again, the website, revenuesourcingcourse.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Alistair McLeod. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Joining me in this segment of today's program is returning guest, Mr. Alistair McLeod. Longtime listeners probably recognize uh, Alistair as the head of research at Gold Money. You can learn more about Gold Money at goldmoney.com. And Alistair is also a prolific author. Uh, you can check out his articles uh, on the insights section of the Gold Money website. Again, that's goldmoney.com. And uh, Alistair, welcome back to the program. That's very much my pleasure, Dennis. So Alistair, in the, the piece that is uh, just recently posted uh, on the insight section of the goldmoney.com website, uh, you mentioned that remarkably... Uh, Mr. Jerome Powell, in his uh, speech following the Jackson Hole Symposium, didn't mention money, money supply, M1 or M2. And uh, you said that's quite remarkable. Can you, can you expand a bit on that? Well, it's particularly remarkable because, I mean, this is meant to be a speech on monetary policy. And um, it's a speech which um, on monetary policy, which doesn't mention money. I mean, <laughs> You know, um, <laughs> it is quite extraordinary. And, and, and not only that, but this comes at a time when money supply has absolutely exploded as a result of the Fed's QE, the Fed cutting interest rates down to the zero bound um, and uh, the massive budget deficit of um, around about three trillion um, in the current fiscal year, three trillion in the last fiscal year. I mean, there are massive moves going on in the monetary sphere. So Powell stands up or rather 
he <laughs> appears uh, virtually at Jackson Hole, makes a speech on monetary policy and fails to mention money. I mean, <laughs> you know, this is bizarre. It really is. It's beyond bizarre. Uh, and it, it shows, I think, the bankruptcy of uh, thought about what is going on um, with inflation. Um, we know that everybody uh, in the establishment talks about inflation as being uh, um, inflation of prices, and they don't seem to, um, if you like, understand that there is a connection and it's a vital connection with the quantity of money. Basically, if you increase the quantity of money, then you're going to see prices rise or put more accurately the purchasing power of the currency fall. And yet there was no mention of this in, uh, you know, in, in uh, um, the Jackson Hole speech whatsoever. So, Alistair, uh, Mr. Powell did in that speech, as I recall, acknowledge that inflation is running higher than the Fed's 2% target, but he didn't offer uh, any change in the, the, the course of the, the policies that the Fed is pursuing uh, from what I understood, is, is, is did I get that right? Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, basically, he said that, okay, um, headline measures of, um, of inflation, which is the CPI, um, running at 4.2%, uh, well above our 2% long-run objective. Yeah, well, we know that. <laughs> In fact, it's closer to 5.4%. I think that's the most recent figure on the CPI you uh, uh, um, uh, um, statistic, um, but um, it's it's even worse than that because it, you know th these are government figures, and we know that from 1980, and I can remember this starting. Governments had a real problem back in 1980 because they started indexing things in the wake of the inflation of the 70s, so that things like pensions. Um, you know, and various other you know, things like uh, uh, rents. Um, and, you know, there's a whole range of things. Uh, also, um, uh, um, index-linked bonds, they were all tied to the rate of inflation as represented by the CPI. So immediately what they started doing was, well, how can we reduce the impact of a rising CPI on um, government uh, um, commitments. And so that has basically been what's happened ever since then. And the result is that you've got John Williams, who um, still calculates uh, the rate of price inflation on the original 1980 basis. And he comes up with a figure of over 13%. So here we are with, um, the you know everybody recognizing that uh, the rate of inflation is more than double uh, the two percent um, gold sort objective, uh, whereas in fact it is considerably higher. Uh, this is this is really important, Dennis, because what it means is that um, we have now got uh, an extra element of. Um, uh, if you like, stimulus being pushed into the economy in the sense that um, the purchasing power of the dollar is going down by around about 5% officially, more than 10% unofficially. Uh, and that means that anyone holding dollars is losing purchasing power to that extent. Uh, now, um, you know, this is, if you like, an extra stimulus on the on uh, as far as borrowers are concerned. And it is therefore, if you like, 
almost a repeat, but a more uh, vicious repeat of what happened back in March 2020, when the Fed cut interest rates from one and well, I think it was one and three quarter percent. First, they cut it by a half and then right down to the zero bound. And at the same time, or just literally two days later, uh, announced um, uh, uh, QE of 120 billion a month. Now, that that was the point where markets turned. It was the point where um, commodity prices took off. And the commodity index uh, sort of went up something like 80% from there. Um, it was the point where gold uh, took off from around about 14, I think it was 1480 or around about then, and ran up to that peak in August uh, of uh, over 2000. So that was a major, major event. We now have a situation where by default, because the purchasing power of the dollar is going down rapidly, uh, that um, we have negative real interest rates. And the, I mean, they are very, very negative. And under these circumstances, as soon as people wake up to the fact that um, a whole lot more money is going to have to be raised by the government in order to spend six trillion, if you like, which is which is what uh, President Biden uh, uh, aims to do in the next uh, fiscal year, which starts at the end of this month. Um, you can see that the foreigners who own an awful lot of dollars are going to uh, maybe do a double take on it and think, do we really want to hold so many dollars? And that, I think, has the makings of a developing crisis. And it's going to be very difficult to, uh, for the Fed to actually handle this, because on the one hand, they've been stimulating financial asset prices with QE. And on the other hand, uh, they have been helping, if you like, uh, uh, the government fund itself uh, by keeping uh, uh, bond yields suppressed. So they can't do both these um, uh, uh, beyond a certain point without uh, destroying the dollar. So that, I think, is the dilemma which we actually face in the coming months. Well, Alistair, I was going to talk to you about time frame, and you just really answered my question. You think this will be actually an issue in the coming months? In your, in your recent article, you said that the flight uh, out of dollar assets, which currently, I think you estimated them at over $30 trillion in your article, you state that's inevitable. And would I be uh, putting words in your mouth if you were going to suggest that we saw that happen you know, yet this year? Well, let me just clarify that a little bit. Um, according to the U.S. Treasury's tick figures, uh, foreigners own uh, financial assets and dollar cash to the tune of around about $32 trillion. Now, that is one and a half times U.S. GDP, approximately. This is a huge element of foreign ownership of your current currency. The problem is that a lot of that money is there um, simply because uh, it's been making money. I mean, of that lot, I, I can't remember the exact figures, but it's something like 12 or 13 trillion is invested in equities. Um, and of course, the equity market has risen. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the foreigner. Um, you know, his mainstream uh, uh, investments were probably back in his home country. I mean, say for a German, for a, for a German um, uh, investment fund, it's obviously going to be German stocks. But you probably have up to 10, 15, maybe 20% invested in international stocks and on foreign stock markets. Now, that would obviously include uh, uh, the US stock market. Um, 
New York Stock Exchange, S&P, uh, NASDAQ, whatever. So, um, you know, and as you make money in the foreign market, then obviously what you do is you um, you stay with it for the ride and you probably put a bit more money in. But your allegiance to that stock market is only so long as it is continuing to rise. But we now have a situation where it is absolutely certain that interest rates have got to rise in America. Now, when people actually latch onto that and it starts affecting um, uh, financial asset prices and particularly equities negatively, then the foreigners are not going to hang around with their 12 trillion of equities invested in uh, US equities they're going to start uh, taking profits. And um, when the market starts falling, then I think you've got a, a scenario where these foreigners will probably rush for the gate at the same time. What I didn't mention in my article is that also there is around about 800 billion of leverage in uh, equities. Uh, and this is uh, um, FINRA's um, uh, estimate, if you like, of uh, the amount of borrowing in order to invest in US equities. And th you know, this is returned from uh, FINRA members. So um, this is huge. I mean, it is, it is something like two and a half times the level of leverage in terms of, of, of dollars uh, that, that existed at the time of the Lehman crisis. So when the markets were very overbought then, it's more a lot more overbought now. So you can see that when the tide turns, there is going to be a really um, catastrophic run for the exits. And this is the danger that we face. Well, Alistair, we've got maybe a minute left in this segment. Uh, for our listeners that are not familiar with the work that Gold Money does, uh, would you be kind enough to give them an explanation? Uh, yes, Dennis, I'd be very happy to. Basically, uh, we um, our, our customers store their gold and silver uh, through us, and we offer the facility to be able to buy and sell gold and silver and the platinum group metals. And uh, the storage options are uh, a number of vaults around the world so that um, someone living in America and maybe concerned that... Uh, that uh, their government might uh, force them, as happened back in 1933, to uh, give up their gold, they might like to store their gold uh, somewhere else. So um, th this, is, this is, if you like, a service which I think is absolutely vital to anyone who wants to protect themselves from the risk of uh, a really nasty smash in uh, financial assets uh, and uh, it, you know nasty enough to take down the currency as well and i think for those people who read my article they will hopefully get a pretty good sense of the dangers that they actually face by doing nothing so gold money um, can help you if you decide that uh, you do want to protect yourself from the events which i forecast in those art in that article well, my guest today is Mr. Alistair McLeod. The website is goldmoney.com. And I'll continue my conversation with Alistair when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure of chatting once again today with returning guest, Mr. Alistair McLeod. If you're just joining us, uh, you can learn more about Alistair's work and read his writings at goldmoney.com. I'd encourage you to click on the Insights 
link on the goldmoney.com website. And Alistair, you had mentioned that um, leverage or, or margin debt in the market is two and a half times what it was at the time of the financial crisis when we saw stocks drop 50%. It, it seems like with uh, all the foreign ownership in U.S. stocks, it seems with the level of, of leverage associated with the market that uh, the, the stars have kind of aligned and we have the potential here for a perfect storm. Uh, yes, Dennis, I think that's right. Um, the, the thing that's interesting is that uh, we have, I think for the last 30 years at least, um, assumed more and more that markets are controlled by central banks. Um, and it's got to the point where um, people, I think, don't understand uh, that markets can ever take a can take away that control from central banks. So we have a situation now where uh, things are definitely going wrong for uh, the major central banks. Uh, uh, clearly, this rise in uh, the level of price inflation, which, as we discussed in the earlier segment, has been misdiagnosed. Um, and uh, it's allowed Jay Powell, for example, to claim that uh, you know rising prices are just a, a, a consequence of the um, uh, COVID disruption, which will sort itself out and therefore um, you know we'll be back at two percent inflation, which is the target, and you know we'll have reasonable employment return and all the rest of it. I mean, it ignores the fact that they're diluting the, the purchasing power of currency in order to finance um, uh, government spending, which is just got completely out of control. And uh, the effect of this um, is inevitably it will drive up interest rates. I mean, you cannot have um, a currency losing purchasing power, say at um, you know, 5, 10, 15% per annum without uh, interest rates rising to compensate holders of the currency for the loss of purchasing power. Now, it's not going to necessarily um, uh, compensate them completely, but at least you can see that um, you know, the, the, the path is, uh, is now there for interest rates to rise to somewhere between 5 and 10%. Now, what would that do to markets? What would the threat of it do to markets? What would it do to government finances? What would it do to uh, businesses which have far too much unproductive debt on their balance sheets? What would it do to individuals with enormous um, uh, uh, mortgages? Uh, and they can't afford uh, to pay enhanced payments. What would it do to property prices? I mean, you know, if people are going to buy new property or buy property with a new mortgage and the new mortgage rate is, say, um, eight or nine percent, then what is that going to do to property prices? I mean, to have um, to ignore the fact that markets at the end of the day do set the rates. I think is a huge error. We must not just assume that the Fed will always manage to control interest rates. That I think would be one of the biggest errors that anyone can make. And that's roughly, I think, what everybody is doing. Well, Alistair, on, on, on uh, past uh, appearances here on the program, you've discussed the fact that history teaches us uh, how this will likely end. Uh, I think that's a, a very valuable conversation to have for the listeners. Uh, in the past, I think you've compared the, the, the current situation to John Law's France in the early 1700s. Uh, could you expand on that a bit for the listeners? 
Yes, um, and I think I think it's worth um, bearing this one in mind because it actually shows the dilemma that the Fed is going to face. Um, what they have been doing with QE, with quantitative easing, is they have been bolstering asset prices. I mean, the way it works quite simply is 120 billion a month is uh, uh, passed through the banking system to pension funds and insurance companies uh, to invest in stocks. Now, in return for that 120 billion a month, uh, what happens is that uh, the insurance companies and uh, pension funds sell low risk assets, in other words, uh, US Treasury debt and agency debt to the Fed. And that ends up on the Fed's balance sheet. And that's why the balance sheet has grown so much. Um, but they end up with 120 billion to invest in other things. So they will go out and they will buy corporate bonds and they will buy equities. And that is why um, uh, the interest rates, if you like, or bond yields have been suppressed. The margins, if you like, which should reflect risk are not reflecting risk anymore because the margins are too small for that risk because of all this extra money flooding in. And equity prices just go up in complete defiance of what's going on in the underlying uh, um, uh, economy. So this was exactly the situation 300 years ago when a man called John Law um, managed to get into a position where he could basically run the financial affairs of France. He ended up as a prototype central banker and controller of the currency. Now, his, his first objective was to uh, reduce the king's debts. Now, he did that uh, quite successfully to a degree, but his second objective was he managed to get hold of um, uh, a monopoly on France's um, exports and, in, and imports, the foreign trade. And this was the Mississippi Company. It's known as the Mississippi Company, but in fact, it, was, um, it wasn't called that. Uh, and he, he wanted to finance that because he had built ships and, he, and infrastructure and all the rest of it. And he did this basically by encouraging people to buy shares in partly paid form. And as the payments came due, obviously, people started selling shares in order to take up uh, their rights. And this put stock on the market. What did he do? He printed money in order to buy these extra shares to support the price. What's the Fed doing? Printing money to support the shares in the market to give us all a feel good factor. This is exactly what John Law was doing way back in 1720. The outcome of that was not, um, if you like, a German style um, uh, or Weimar Republic inflation, one which sort of goes, goes on to the point where everybody suddenly realizes that uh, the currency is dead. Uh, but uh, by uh, rigging the market in this way, it was the market collapse that precipitated events. And bear in mind that we're going to get a rise in interest rates. That is for absolute certain, and it's going to be a major rise as well. What's going to happen to the market? It's going to happen. It's going to do exactly the same as happened in France in 1720. Now, what happened was that the Mississippi sh uh, Venture shares peaked at 10,000 livres, which was the paper currency that he was printing, uh, in February, end of February, early March 1720. By around about September, the price was down to 4,000 livres. But the real casualty was the livre. The livre went from um, a value. It more or less held that value through to around about June, July. But in September, there was no quotation on the foreign exchange markets in London and Amsterdam, which were the two main uh, trading centers at that time. Why? 
because it was valueless. In other words, there was a policy that collapsed the currency completely. There is this risk that we face today that modern QE, which is doing exactly the same thing as John Law was doing 300 years ago, is going to collapse the currency. So what's the Fed going to do? Is the Fed going to pursue that line, the John Law line, or is it going to hold back and let everyone who is indebted basically face the music? And that means government as well. Government basically will be, uh, if you like, entrapped in a debt trap and shown to be completely insolvent. Can the Fed do that? This is a very, very difficult position. It's black or white. There's no longer any choice, no longer kicking the can down the road. Why? Because the purchasing power of the dollar is the big risk ahead, and there is nothing they can do to stop it other than stop printing money and let everybody go bust. Well, Alistair, there has been some talk of, of tapering. Uh, I believe it was Mr. Bullard of the St. Louis Fed who, who came out and, and talked about the fact that it was time to do that. Um, what, what, was he just the token spokesman for a taper, or do you think that that taper talk may be more than talk? I think the taper talk is basically talk because, um, you know, if markets continue to rise, um, you know, without the necessity for a monthly injection currently at 120 billion a month, um, that, you know, and there wasn't the dollar danger, then um, fine, you could sort of start reducing your taper. But that's not the situation. The situation basically is the moment the S&P falls 10 percent, all this talk about reducing taper is going to switch to my goodness. We better increase tape. We better increase QE to support the market. That basically is what John Law was forced to do uh, in early 1720, and the Fed will be forced to do it um, uh, in 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 this year too. And it's not just the Fed, incidentally. I mean, the amount of QE that the Japanese central bank has been doing is just absolutely astronomic. They're further down the road. I mean, they are in there buying ETFs, um, uh, you know, equity ETFs. The ECB has been doing it as well, though it calls it something slightly different. Um, and uh, we've been doing it in this country as well. And the Swiss National Bank has been doing it, but they've been buying foreign equities as well as their own. So you can see that... Um, Governments basically have got into the business of rigging markets, and it's not going to end happily. Alistair, a uh, quick final question for you. Uh, gold and silver prices don't seem to be responding to uh, the level of uh, QE that's occurring. Uh, prices have pulled back uh, a bit this year, although they've rebounded a bit of late. So what do you attribute that? Well, there are various um, things happening. I mean, one is that we've had Basel III regulations um, imposed on the banks uh, in America and also in Europe, and they're going to be imposed in the UK, which is where the, the main um, uh, gold paper market exists uh, with the LBMA, and that's going to come in at, um, on January the 2nd, the next year. Um, so the banks have been trying to keep prices suppressed so that they can close their open positions. Um, now, they're not going to be able to do that uh, completely, but they've basically got to withdraw from the markets uh, or substantially reduce their positions in the markets because it's an inefficient use of balance sheets, of bank balance sheets and treasury departments in the banks are not going to tolerate that sort of thing. So 
There's a big fundamental change there. There is a battle going on in the markets um, whereby uh, the banks are basically trying to reduce their positions and get out. And interestingly, I was looking at the delivery position in uh, silver um, uh, this week so far. 21 million ounces of silver have been delivered. I mean, this is this is phenomenal. We've never seen this. Uh, I, I'm talking about COMEX, incidentally. 21 million ounces delivered um, out of COMEX. This is really quite, quite extraordinary. The other thing that we've seen is that the exchange for physical, which um, is the arbitrage really between uh, uh, the uh, futures market and the forward market, um, that seems to have narrowed down hugely, which tells me that the amount of activity that the bullion banks are engaged in is tending to diminish. Um, I think uh, the other thing is that uh, a lot of speculative interest has been siphoned out of um, gold and silver as hedges against uh, falling uh, purchasing power of fiat currencies into cryptocurrencies, particularly Bitcoin and uh, other currencies like Ether. And uh, that definitely has had an impact, if you like, on overall demand in the markets. The third thing I would say is that these conditions um, are not understood by the investment community. The investment community now is totally sold on Keynesian economics, which basically dismisses gold, if you like, as a pet rock or um, you know, the gold uh, um, standard as, um, you know, something from the past and all the rest of it. So they've, you know, in their minds, they've demonetized gold and they don't understand gold. They do begin to understand gold once it really starts running and they say, oh, my goodness, why are we missing out on this? Why is this running? We need to understand that. And that that stage, people get serious. So. I think we're in the very, very early stages of gold and silver reflecting what is if lining up to be a catastrophe for paper currencies. Um, the idea that there's any option other than uh, gold and silver, I think, is, is, a, is a very, very dangerous concept for anyone who's um, using it as, as an excuse, if you like, not to have gold and silver. So. Um, it's something that really I think a lot of your listeners should consider very, very uh, seriously. My guest today has been Mr. Alistair McLeod. Uh, you can learn more about his work at goldmoney.com. Alistair, you're always so gracious with your time, and we uh, appreciate your perspective very much and love to have you back down the road. Thank you for joining us today. That's very much my pleasure, Dennis. We will return after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, if you're just joining me, we are making a new resource available to the listeners uh, to the RLA radio program. We have a revenue sourcing virtual class that we will be holding during the month of October. It will be held on three consecutive Tuesday nights uh, beginning on October 5. And the class will begin at 7.30 p.m., conclude at 9 p.m. It is a virtual class you can attend uh, with an internet connection. When you do register for the class, you'll get a workbook. Uh, the cost for the class on the workbook is just $49. And during the class, we will give you some reports to potentially help you maximize your benefits from Social Security, give you some ideas to consider to reduce the taxes on your IRA and 401k and show you how to use the revenue sourcing tool to potentially help you achieve your dreams of a comfortable retirement in what 
many of us would agree is a crazy new world. So if you'd like to register for the class or learn more, just visit revenuesourcingcourse.com. The website again is revenuesourcingcourse.com. You know, on today's program and in the last two segments, I spoke to Alistair McLeod about Federal Reserve policy. And along those lines, I read a piece this past week by Ryan McMakin, who is a writer for the Mises Institute. And he had a very interesting perspective on Fed policy moving ahead. His piece discussed the political realities of Fed policy. He said that a lot of the discussion relating to what is the Fed going to do tends to focus on the Fed's so-called dual mandate. That is to assume that the Fed's policy on interest rates is guided by concerns either over stable prices or maximizing sustainable employment. Those two items make up the Fed's so-called dual mandate. But McMakin makes a really good point. This whole dual mandate premise ignores the political realities of interest rates as a key factor in the federal government's rapidly growing deficit spending. Now, the reality is this. In 2020, the federal government spent $3.3 trillion more than it collected in taxes. That's nearly double the $1.7 trillion deficit incurred at the height of the Great Recession. 2021 will be a repeat of 2020. What this means is that Congress, the government, needs to borrow a whole lot of money at unprecedented levels to fill that gap between tax revenue and what the Treasury actually spends. Congress could raise taxes, but politicians, for the most part, don't like to do that. There's always political opposition to higher taxes, particularly when much of the public doesn't like the way in which the government spends a lot of the money that it spends. Well, that's really where the Federal Reserve comes in. Washington politicians need the Fed's help to facilitate ever greater amounts of deficit spending through the Fed's purchases of government debt. See, if Congress wants to spend $3 trillion more than it's going to collect in taxes, it's got to issue $3 trillion in government bonds. Now, that sounds easy enough when interest rates are low, and interest rates are incredibly low. But here's the rub, as I talked about with Alistair McLeod, larger and larger amounts of deficit spending put pressure on interest rates. In other words, it will force interest rates up eventually. So that's where we find ourselves today. And we are in what I would consider to be unprecedented economic times, which is why we're making the revenue sourcing class available as an additional free resource. If you missed the first part of the segment, the class will be held uh, virtually three consecutive Tuesday nights in October. The cost is $49.
You can get more information by visiting revenuesourcingcourse.com. Uh, the website, again, is revenuesourcingcourse.com. You can also sign up at that website. Again, the cost is just $49. The website is revenuesourcingcourse.com. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use, and I'll be back again next week.